Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX, and I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Before you tour the grounds of Onyx Castle, you were instructed not to taste anything, and that's because you will encounter... Only plants that kill. The castle is home to a poison garden, which means everything edible can be lethal. There are common fruits and vegetables with a sinister side. The potato, the tomato, capsicums, aubergine. And there are plants you would absolutely not want to eat, like wolfsbane. The uh, Greeks called it the queen of poisons because they used it to kill people. Wolfsbane was also used by the infamous curry killer. That story and more are coming up later in the show. But first, we're learning about the surprising history of soda with Tristan Donovan, author of Fizz. Tristan, welcome to Mill Street. Pleased to be here. So 
fizz, how soda shook up the world. It turns out that carbonated beverages have been around a really long time. So 18th century is is when all this started. Yeah, that's right. That's when we started working out how to carbonate water. Obviously, natural spring water that was naturally fizzy and existed forever. And then Schweppes came along and invented the compression pump. He was giving it away to doctors, hoping they could use it to treat the city's poor. So what exactly, what does that mean? How, how did they help the city's poor? So in the 18th century, people believed that carbonated water was helpful. It would had curative properties. It would give you kind of strength. Um, it would cure scurvy. I mean, that was the big aim. They thought people can sail around the world without dying all the time. Hmm. So it, it was seen as a very important thing to achieve at a time when people didn't really have much knowledge of medicine. So root beer, I kind of knew this story, but it was really a health tonic. Isn't that how it got started? Yeah, so it was like bits of bark and all kinds of stuff. Traditionally, root beer merged out of what people in medieval Europe called small beers, and they were fermented. That's where they got their fizziness from. So this is why they're not a soda. So Coca-Cola, everybody's heard the story that there was coca leaf in it. So the, the design of the glass was reflective of the coca leaf. Is that right? No, it's the, um, the coca pod where chocolate comes from. <laughs> so, oh, I see. Um, so the guy who designed it basically looked up the wrong thing, <laughs> but thought that looked better. So I mean, he used that for his design. So um, luckily he looked in the wrong part of the encyclopedia and it worked out quite well for them. God, it would have been so much better if it was a coca leaf. That'd be a great story. <laughs> um, okay, so um, Coca-Cola... It's a huge success. They, you know, make it part of Christmas. You say that it's often claimed that Coca-Cola's 1931 Christmas ad created the look of the modern-day Santa Claus with his red suit, etc. So it really they did a brilliant job connecting the product to the American culture. Uh, but what about Dr. Pepper and Pepsi? So let, let's start with Pepsi. I mean, Pepsi was just one of many hundreds of Coca-Cola imitators. Um, But Pepsi was the one that survived and went on to be their big competitor. Um, Dr. Pepper was something else entirely. So came from Waco in Texas, um, just created at Soda Fountain, where the soda jerk was realizing that everyone was getting a bit bored of the usual flavors. And he created this drink, which really became the drink of Texas. Um, But Eventually, in the 60s and 70s, it finally started to go national. So Dr. Pepper has been around a long time. It's actually earlier than Coca-Cola by a year, but it's had a very slow rise to national prominence. So the 60s happened, Haight-Ashbury, etc., and 7-Up embraces the hippie movement. Pepsi did not. I guess there was a point in the late 60s, 70s, where a lot of those products had to sort of decide which road to take, right? Yeah, Seven Up's quite an interesting one because it it always been kind of popular, but by the end of the sixties, it was like this sort of forgotten soda. So it was owned by um, Philip Morris, the tobacco company at the time, and they did all these surveys. And it's like, oh, what's your favorite soda? And 
people would list off their 10 favorite sodas and they wouldn't name seven up and the person running the focus group would go what about seven up and everyone's like oh yeah i really like seven up i just forgot about it so they decided to go for this sort of yellow submarine beetle style <laughs> image to try and actually kind of reconnect with people and go actually we're the uncola and we're different and don't forget about us seven up It was a very successful campaign and kind of put them a bit back on the map after they were sort of fading away. So the Pepsi challenge, I remember that, where Pepsi and Coke, it was a Pepsi ad and people would, would drink an unidentified cola and they think it was Coke, but it was actually Pepsi and the people prefer Pepsi. I want you to tell me which cola you prefer. Oh, my. Pepsi. We chose the Pepsi. It was unanimous, the both of us. Don't take our word for it. Let your taste decide. Take the Pepsi challenge. Did that, it was very famous as a commercial. Did it actually work? Did it Did it boost sales of Pepsi? Oh, yeah, the Pepsi challenge really did work. Huh. That campaign persuaded people who'd never really bothered with Pepsi to go, well, I should give it a try. And basically by the mid-80s, they were almost neck and neck. So... It had this massive really? effect. It basically kind of, after years of being on top, Coca-Cola started seeing more and more market share going to Pepsi, and it looked like Pepsi was going to pull ahead. And then Coke, with its deep tentacles in the retail market, just managed to bull its way through, or was something else happened? Well, new Coke happened. So, um, oh, oh. Yeah, so basically Coca-Cola panics and goes, there's something wrong with our drink. We've got to make it more like Pepsi. Hi, we're New Edition. And we're here to introduce the great new taste of Coca-Cola, the taste of today. And instantly... <laughs> and then... Yeah. Right. Everyone's like, what are you doing? Leave our Coca-Cola alone. And this has this huge backlash and they have to bring back the original coca-cola but oddly and this definitely was not planned it made everyone kind of cherish coca-cola again it was brilliant although it wasn't intended which is the decision was pepsi or coke the new decision was new coke or original coke yeah so 20 years ago people went after soda because of the obesity rate in america going up so quickly trying to ban sodas in schools that seems to have died down a little bit. So are, are sodas sort of back in good form now, you think? Or have they shifted their marketing and perception in a way where they've kind of avoided taking a big hit for that? I, I think the debate has eased. So there was like this period for about 10 years where, you know, it was like liquid candy. We've got to kind of clear out all the soda that we're serving to children in schools you know soda was everywhere and in large quantities i mean as a kid growing up in the 80s i think there was about six months of my life where i drank nothing but lemonade i don't think many children today will be kind of allowed to do that so i think there's been a shift away from soda um when i i go to the u.s when i first started going kind of mid-2000s you know, there would be coolers in shops and it was all soda. Everything was soda. And now, you know, there's water, there's fruit juice. There, there seems to be much more choice. And I think that's partly 
because of a change in consumer habits. It's also a change in the companies that make soda. So the Coca-Cola company also makes a lot of bottled water and owns a lot of other drinks. And the same is true for Pepsi. So they've kind of turned themselves into beverage companies. And really, they don't mind if you're buying bottled water instead of mug root beer. It doesn't really matter to them that much because it's still a sale. Yeah, it's probably not that expensive to take water out of a tap and quote unquote purify it and put it in a bottle. Not, not that I'm cynical, but I mean, it's probably cheaper, right? You don't have to have any yeah, flavoring. That's what I'm saying is, how much does it cost to make a bottle of water after all? <laughs> Tristan, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Likewise, thank you, Chris. I like to teach the world to sing. Sing with me. That was Tristan Donovan. His book is called Fizz, How Soda Shook Up the World. Now it's time to answer your baking questions with special guest Cheryl Day. Cheryl is the owner of Back in the Day Bakery in Savannah, Georgia. She's also the author of Cheryl Day's Treasury of Southern Baking. So, Chris, I may. Do you remember Karen Clay's coconut cake? Do I remember it? I've eaten about 12 of them. <laughs> So I made it the other day, and, I mean, that cake is literally, I think, the best coconut cake I've ever eaten. It's just everything you want coconut cake to be. Well, the texture is unbelievable. It's so good. It has that velvety, satiny texture, which is good. It's also, oddly enough, not too sweet. I love the salted butter. Yeah, the salted butter, it balances sweet and brings out other flavors. Yeah, that's it's sort of the king. Well, there's chocolate cake, but the coconut cake has to be near the top of the cake pyramid, don't you think? I think so. <laughs> Man, I, was that a good cake. Yeah, so good. But so, yeah, I made it the other day at the bakery because one of my mentors ordered a coconut cake. And I said, oh. you know, I think I'm going to step it up and make this cake and mm. it was absolutely perfect. Well, you made your mentor happy. I did. <laughs> I did. Always good. Yep. Okay, time to take some calls. Hi, welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? I'm Lisa from Philadelphia. Hi, Lisa. How can we help you today? Well, I'm hoping you can help me solve a mystery that's crossed two continents and two decades. Oh boy. My mother and I made an amazing chocolate mousse forever in the States and in Australia. It has only four ingredients. It was perfect. And then suddenly, four years ago, it failed. It went from being this velvety, bourbon-infused mousse to a limp chocolate soup. Oh, goodness. <laughs> that doesn't sound good. So it's a mousse? It's a mousse, yes. And the ingredients are simply semi-sweet chocolate chips, light cream scalded, egg yolks, and brandy. And you heat them, put them in the blender, process it till smooth, and it's always been amazing for over 20 years. And then suddenly it just stopped working. Just run through the actual process? Sure. Um, you scald the light cream, then you put everything in a blender. Then you add the semi-sweet chocolate chips, the two egg yolks, and the three tablespoons of brandy, and you process it at blend until it's smooth. 
what makes it a mousse? It sounds more like a pudding or a pot yes, de creme. Well, it is called a pot de creme. So that's okay. the correct name, yeah. right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So it is a pot de creme. And mm-hmm. we pour it into these individual cups, put it in the refrigerator, and it always came out amazingly well. The key question is, did you change the type of chocolate chips? No, not that I'm aware of, unless you think the chocolate chips change. Same brand? Yep, same brand, same semi-sweet, same size. See, I was going to ask about the cream, because light cream is interesting. I usually hear heavy cream. I don't ever hear light cream. Do you, Chris? Right. I would think heavy cream for this. I mean, I mix in mine, I do heavy cream and milk so maybe that would be like a light cream oh interesting all right and maybe the scalding maybe i always scalded it until the little bubbles appeared on the top mm-hmm. it starts to steam yep and the blender so that's how you've always made it in a blender yep it is unusual and it's so easy when I do it, I just do exactly what you said, except for I don't put it in the blender, which seems to me it would cool it down quite a bit. And then do you bake it after that for how long and what temperature? And is it in a water bath? Or tell me about that process. Oh, that's a great thing. I just pour it into little custard cups and put it in the refrigerator, and it sets in three to five hours. You have two eggs in yes, this? Yes, two or? egg yolks. What's happening is those yolks need to be cooked to a certain temperature. Otherwise, they're not going to provide any thickening. So what's happening is you're pouring in scalded milk, which is 180 degrees Mm -hmm. or something. You're putting in this big blender with a bunch of chocolate and other things. By the time it mixes with the egg yolks, they're not getting cooked. And so since they're not getting cooked, they're not thickening the mixture. So one thing you could do is put that mixture back on the stovetop in a saucepan after the blender and bring it up to like 175 stirring. Right. You don't want to be over 180 probably, and then put it in the cups. Well, that's wonderful. You solved the mystery. Thank you so much. Well, we don't, we know. don't know. No, I, I, I <laughs> proposed a solution. I have a, a couple of other ideas because to me, okay. a pot of creme yeah. is a baked pudding. I do two different kinds of chocolate pudding. I do a pudding that I cook on the stovetop, and I don't put it in a blender or anything like that. But I do pour it through a sieve. But for a pot de creme, I do put it in the cups. I put it in the oven at like 250 degrees, and I cook it in a water bath for about 45 minutes to an hour until it sets. I don't see how it's going to set if it hasn't gotten to the proper temperature. Well, obviously, you've discovered it's not going to. Um, otherwise, like Chris said, you could cook it on the stovetop. But to me, that's a chocolate pudding, a pot de creme I think yeah, of as a baked yeah. custard. So it just kind of depends which right. way you want to go. Well, I so appreciate your help. Well, let us know. Thanks for Thank calling. You. Oh, that's so kind of you. Thank you so much for your show. It's wonderful. Take Thank care. You. Goodbye. Thanks for calling. This is Mill Street Radio. If you have a baking disaster, give us a call. The number is 855 855- Four two six nine eight four three. One more time, eight five five four two six nine eight four three. Or simply email us at questions at milkstreetradio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Laurie, and I'm calling from North Shore of Boston. Hi, Laurie. How Hello. can we help? So my question regards something that I noticed when following directions for Paul Hollywood's chocolate orange banana bread recipe. Okay. 
So the first step of the recipe, which is the most pertinent to my question, it calls for mixing mashed bananas, sugar, softened butter, and grated orange zest. The next step, the eggs are beaten in one at a time, and following that, the flour and baking powder, you sift over the banana mixture and fold in. So what I found is that the banana mixture in that very first step appears to look like what I'm calling curdled. Is this because orange zest is acidic, and when mixed with dairy, the butter, it results in this chemical change? And I'm wondering, should I add the citrus zest as one of the last steps of the recipe rather than the first? Because I did make the banana bread, and I wasn't too happy with it. What you're dealing with actually is not the zest. Basically, what's happening is, you know, you're creaming. Chris and I talk about this a lot when you're creaming the sugar and butter together, and then you're adding Mm -hmm. in eggs to a very fatty mixture. That does not want to emulsify easily. When I make banana breads and cakes, I usually do melted butter or oil because I find that it emulsifies a lot easier. It's definitely not the zest because I make pies all the time that have butter and zest and that shouldn't be an issue. And if it does look a little curdled, usually it pulls together once you start adding the flour. Did that happen here or not? No, no. It it stayed curdled. Yeah, it just didn't look great. What do you think, Chris? This reminds me of pound cake because <laughs> pound cake does look curdled sometimes. Mm-hmm. There's a different reason sometimes, which is you don't have room temperature ingredients. Right. If the butter in particular is cold, it does not mm-hmm. emulsify as easily as when it's cool room temperature around 67. It's malleable, but it's not soft. Right. I think the problem here is get the butter at 67 degrees, just put an instant meat thermometer in it, and then the eggs also yeah. probably should be room temperature. You can put them in a breakfast bowl for a minute with some hot water on them, sure. and that'll help a lot. The second thing is I've many times made a curdled batter and then baked it off, and it was fine. Right. So it doesn't necessarily mean it's not going to come out. Or beat each egg for 20 seconds, which seems like, just forever. forever. Yeah, it really seems like after okay. five seconds, you go, I think I've done enough. But if you really do that, that also helps emulsification. Okay. So that, no, I think that answers that well. Thank you for Thank for you all that, for your uh, questions. Advice. Take okay. care. Thanks for calling. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Bye bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Davida from Brookline, Massachusetts. Hi, Davida. How can we help? I'm trying to update my recipes because it saves time for me to use the kitchen scale rather than measuring right. cups. And I'm sure, sure you've does. questions like this before, but I'm having a problem with converting cups to grams because there's disagreement. But for flour, there is more agreement, but not exactly. I know at King Arthur's, they say it's 120 grams per right. cup. And Milk Street says 130 grams per cup. Yeah, and some say a little higher. And when I bake bread you know, the difference begins to add up. So the question I have is, does a 10 gram per cup difference matter? Well, I think my answer has to be just do what Milk Street says. (laughs) But I I can't really say that because I have enormous uh, love for the folks at King Arthur. They do a great job. And I hate to tell you, I'm right in the middle. So we'll have a conversation about that. Good. We'll do it the Cheryl's way. But um, (laughs) 
<laughs> I, I'll tell you how we did this. We looked at a dozen different places like King Arthur, baking books, you know, Stella Parks, people, of course, Cheryl's, and we see what they say about measurements. And then we did it ourselves and tried to come up with, you know, a mean based on our testing. The problem is different people measure flour differently by volume, and a cup could be over five ounces or it could be at four ounces. So at some point, you just have to come to an agreement in your kitchen what it's going to be. I would say, Cheryl's probably right. I would split the difference between 120 and 130, 125. Yeah, that's what I do. Yeah, I think that's probably fine. But, you know, that's a good range between 120. I tend to be closer to 130, I would think, but 125 works perfectly for me. I think the key point is the fact that you're weighing your flour, so you're miles ahead of folks who don't. There's another issue, which is the wild card, which is if you get a recipe that calls for dry ingredients by volume, like three cups flour, well, you have no idea how much flour they're using. Right. Because it depends how they measure it. So the difference between 120 and 130 grams is the least of your problems. The real problem is what did the person who write the recipe think was in a cup? And you don't know. Thankfully, so many recipes now, Davida, do give weight. So I would go with, you know, what that particular recipe says. And sometimes actually the weight and the volume don't even nearly match. But no, that's a whole other problem. So true. One of the other things about weighing dry ingredients is tearing, right? So you you can put the flour in the bowl, reset to zero, add the sugar to the bowl, reset to zero. So it's great because you can add four or five ingredients to the same bowl and do it really quickly. So that's the other reason I love using a scale. And especially if you're making bread. Yes. Yeah. I was trying to figure out molasses for making gingerbread, and Mm. everybody was all over the place about that and weight. So I finally just came up with my own weight, two-thirds of a cup of it, because nobody agreed on it. Davida, you are well on your way to be a professional (laughs) baker, because that's exactly what I do for molasses and for Mm -hmm. honey. That's the best way to do it. And then just write it down, and then you have your own chart. Okay. Well, it's been good talking to you, so at least I don't feel like I'm the only one out there with this problem. No, No, not at all. Not at all. It's a great question. Thanks so much for calling. Yeah, thanks for calling. All right, and thank you. (laughs) Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio coming up. Could there be a killer lurking in your herb garden? That's up right after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. 
my favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just <sighs> like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, we're heading to the English countryside to visit Onik Castle. Maybe you've seen its stateroom in Downton Abbey or its courtyards in some of the early Harry Potter movies. It's where Harry takes his first flight on a broom. But elsewhere on the grounds, there are a series of gardens, some filled with roses, some filled with topiaries, and one that requires this warning. Don't touch, taste, or smell anything. This is Tom Pattinson, a tour guide at Onyx Poison Garden, a collection of the world's most dangerous plants. Pattinson says that even if you follow these rules... 
you may still be at risk. We actually keep a tally of how many people faint each year in this garden. I suppose you put a little star on your shoulder if someone's fainted on one of your tours. I've just had one fainter this year, so I'm lagging behind, which is a horrible thought, isn't it, wanting people to faint? But there you are. And it keeps the boss happy, Jane, Duchess of Northumberland, because she wants this garden to shock people into realising you can't fool around with plants. Duchess Jane Percy is the creator of the Poison Garden. She likes to maintain a strong focus on the sinister. If she overhears Tom or another guide extolling the virtue of a plant, how it could be medicinal or tasty in small doses, she'll pull them aside and say... I don't want to hear the good parts of the plant. I want you to emphasize the nasty bits, the guts and the gall. To tour the garden, like we're doing today, you need to be able to appreciate the macabre. And this becomes even clearer when you reach a set of big black gates. On those gates, notice these plants can kill. And two skull and crossbones. I see a spider there. And I see a serpent, a snake, an asp, the one that allegedly put an end to Cleopatra's life. Big thing I like about this gate is it has a wonderful clanging sound. In we go. I'm looking down the garden and I can see rhubarb. Now why on earth would we have rhubarb in a poison garden? I love rhubarb and custard for dessert. But unfortunately, the leaves contain oxalic acid a poison. It's the main ingredient in a bottle of paint stripper. Can you imagine, during the First World War in this country, we put out a substitute list of vegetables, substitutes for cabbage, for example, and rhubarb leaves were on the list. Oops. Uh, moving up a bit here, one of the biggest offenders in terms of plant families belongs to the group Solanaceae. Uh, potatoes, tomatoes, uh, and uh, deadly nightshade, which is behind us. I can see the black fruit shining there, saying, come and taste me. And apparently they're moorish to taste, but I am not going to try them, thank you, because three could kill a child. I'm looking down, mentioning children, at uh, hellebore. A youngsters used to have tapeworms in their gut. And this was the medicine that was given with some porridge or gruel, crush up some of these roots, get the child to eat it, it killed the tapeworm. If the dose was too big, it killed the child as well. Moving on. Tom could tell a cautionary tale for every plant in the garden, even the apple, cherry, and medlar trees that grow in the corner. All their seeds contain cyanide. But aside from these accounts of common dangers and unfortunate accidents, there are more extraordinary cases of killer plants. Tom is joining me now to share more about the poison garden. Tom, welcome to Milk Street. Well, thanks. That's very kind of you, Chris. Good to be here. You mentioned that Duchess Jane Percy is behind the garden and how she wants you to tell the bloody tales of these plants. But I just really want to know how she got this idea in the first place. Okay. Um, the garden itself was first established in 1750 by the first Duke. Fast forward to the year 1995-96, when Duchess Jane came on the site, it was going to be turned into a 12-acre car park for the town. 
She came on the scene and said it's going to be a garden and a garden with a difference. She'd visited Italy and the Medici gardens and was taken by what the Medici history was of poisoning people, getting rid of their enemies. And uh, 2005, she said, I'm going to realise this dream of having a poison garden. Everyone else has a curative garden, a healing garden. I'm going to have in it only plants that kill. So every plant can kill? I mean, what do you mean by poisonous here? On a sliding scale, I suppose we have a hundred different plants in there. And the, the lowest of the low is, is a nettle sting. But it still has what we say is an adverse pharmacological effect on a human being. So it's called poisonous. At the top end of the scale, we have a phytotoxin called Rhocinus communis. And that is the ricin plant. So in between, uh, we have a cluster of plant families, and in that plant family we have uh, the potato, the tomato, uh, capsicums, chilies, aubergine, uh, deadly nightshade, and the mandrake of Harry Potter fame. All of those plants, they contain what we call tropane poisons. So the least you can get from that are um, serious um, diarrhoea, stomach upset, etc., and of course at the other end, death. I remember one of the James Bond novels from the 60s took place in Japan. Yeah. And there was a poison garden in that story, if you remember the, the book. That's right. Uh, and the gardeners had to walk around in special suits. And uh, do the gardeners have to wear protective clothing to work uh, in the garden? Oh, yes. You might not remember the moon landings in 1969, but I do. I do. And uh, the suits they wore there, <laughs> the very reminiscent of those, white suits covering every part of the body. But this is the piece de resistance as far as I'm concerned. And the, the Duchess, she does host um, nudist, you know, sort of a nudist day there where people strip off their clothes and they do a tour <laughs> of the garden. And um, I, I know the garden as well because I work alongside them. And uh, one, one of them, Ben, who is a senior gardener, he's a very quiet chap. And he said, oh, I'll try anything once. So there he was walking around, giving them a tour of the garden naked. <laughs> There's obviously a certain pleasure and joy in all of this. Is it just because it's different and controversial? Yes, well, it can be controversial, of course. But people do enjoy it, and uh, I think there's a bit of fear in it because we have to be serious. We have to stick to the script here and um, uh, talk about the darker side of plants. So let's go through a few more plants. So we heard about rhubarb leaves and uh, the nightshades. Yeah. But what about some of the really deadly ones? You mentioned ricin or castor bean. What does that look like, uh, the castor bean plant? The castor bean, it's got red leaves, and the main part is the um, the capsule, the seed capsule, which has the castor beans in. And it can go two ways. Uh, the Duchess isn't listening, I hope, so I can tell you this. You can get castor oil, which is useful from the beans. But if you process it another way, you get ricin. And that is deadly. Um, infamously, Georgi Markov, in the late 70s, 1970s, he was walking on Waterloo Bridge and he felt a sharp pain in his thigh. And four days later, he was dead. They tried to x-ray and couldn't see anything, but eventually they actually found the tiniest pellet imaginable. And what it did was shut down all his vital organs. So of the hundred plants that we have in there, 
many of them you stand a chance of survival. But with ricin, there's absolutely no chance at all. Um, monkshood or wolfsbane, everyone I think has heard of. Yes. I guess it repels wolves and werewolves, but how does it work? What does the plant look like? Well, the plant itself has blue purple flowers. The uh, Greeks called it the queen of poisons because they use it to kill people. And there's a, um, another case, quite a famous, um, famous incident in this country, called the curry killer. And this is um, a lady uh, from India, and uh, Mr. Chima came to stay with her and her husband. She had two or three children, and after a while, this Mr. Chima, he started to have an affair with her. But then he met a younger woman, and he planned to marry her. So this lady, secretly, she'd been back to India and she'd got some mugshood powder and she put it into a curry that she found in the, in the fridge. And, and uh, he came back with his uh, fiancée and he died and the fiancée lived. Oh, man. Never get into a, that situation. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> and, and test your curry before you eat it. Um, you, you also mentioned the, the rhododendrons, of which I've had plenty around houses in the past, but I guess... Uh, there can be a problem with rhododendron nectar? Yes, well, this one started off, especially it was noticed in Turkey. Um, the bees uh, seemed to go to it quite a lot, and they were making quite a lot of honey, of course, and people were eating the honey and hallucinating after, afterwards. So mm. in this country, we call it mad honey. And there are incidents, at least one really incident, of uh, warfare between two countries, and one of them leaves jars of honey to, so that the enemy, who was winning, will think that they've, um, they've survived and they've not had time to take the honey with them. So they get stuck into the honey and they start hallucinating, and it's a bit like the Trojan horse. They, they um, take over when they, well, whilst they're hallucinating. Now, another one that was surprising, as you said, snowdrops. Yeah contain a nasty compound in their bulbs, yeah. which actually can cause death, right? It, it can actually, and it's not just the snowdrop, it's the um, daffodil as well, contains a poison. Mm. About five years ago, there was a national supermarket chain. They were actually fined for displaying uh, narcissi bulbs and snowdrop bulbs near onions and onion sets because they look so much alike. And then, just about maybe two months ago, in the national press, it's happened again. Someone was taken to task for selling daffodil bulbs next to some onion bulbs. So we never learn, you see. Tom, uh, great pleasure. Thank you so much. And uh, I, I don't think I'll, I'll take the tour on nudist day. Yeah. But... Well, Chris, let me say, if you're in Annick and you want to see the castle, it'd be a pleasure to take you there. I, I will remember your offer. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're welcome. Take care. Lovely talking to you. That was Tom Pattinson, a tour guide at the Onik Poison Garden. Every year, thousands of visitors walk through the garden with Tom and the other guides. So we'll count in and we'll count you out and hopefully the numbers match up. But there's no guarantee. No guarantee in this life. So far this year, 134 people have fainted. 11 people have vomited. Two ambulances were called, and three people proposed marriage. The visitors on this tour made it out alive, and we pulled a few of them aside to find out why they came to the Poison Garden and what they learned. So uh, my name's Daniel, and I go by the name Forager Dan, and I'm a foraging instructor from Nottinghamshire. 
To prepare for one of his classes, Dan wanted to get a close look at a plant that can trouble foragers. The, the giant hogweed, that's something that I, I often teach about common hogweed. That's one of my favorite wild edibles. It's a really beautiful tempura battered, and that's like its poisonous cousin. Hello, my name is Lorna Leeming, and I come from Suffolk. Lorna and her husband were also worried about doppelgangers. We've got our grandchildren, and I feed them berries from the hedgerows. So I, I do give them elderberries and blackberries and everything else, but I'm not sure about deadly nightshade. So I just We're want, sure not to give them deadly well, yeah, I nightshade. I just want to see it so that I, yeah. I don't mistake it in future. Yeah. Most of the people we spoke to shared this carefulness. They wanted to know what not to eat. But then we met Caroline Barton. I mean, my fascination is how you could murder your husband. Sorry, Jim. <laughs> could you just grow something? At least I can be um, on guard now. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe some of us, like Caroline's husband Jim, should exercise a bit of caution with both plants and people. Using poison to dispatch enemies is, of course, a time-honored practice. In Rome, mushrooms and belladonna were the poisons of choice. Socrates, of course, died of hemlock. Rasputin was fed cakes and wine infused with cyanide, which oddly had no effect, so then he was shot and thrown into a river. Lucretia Borgia had a reputation as a world-class poisoner, using a hollow ring to slip poison into a lover's drink. And our own CDC claims that 48 million Americans get food poisoning each year, and over 100,000 are hospitalized. You know, it's one thing to be poisoned deliberately, but getting poisoned for absolutely no good reason seems truly beyond the pale. Special thanks to Hamish Brown, our field producer, at the Onik Poison Garden. This is Mill Street Radio. After the break, Dan Pashman and I will battle over breakfast cereal. That's coming up. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. 
it'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hey, this is Chris Kimball and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess, or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas, from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time. Call us at 617-249-3167 or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Now let's head into the kitchen with Lynn Clark to talk about this week's recipe, upside-down cardamom spiced plum cake. Lynn, how are you? I'm doing well, Chris. As you know, I love bakeries. I love baked goods. I love sweets. One of my favorite bakeries of all time is in East London. It's the Violet Bakery. It's Claire Patak. She worked at Chez Panisse. She's known for taking the familiar and making it pretty interesting. So she made three loaf cakes when I was there. One of them was an upside-down cardamom spiced plum cake. And no all-purpose flour. And really interesting technique with the upside down. And I was thinking, like, you know, this is just a simple loaf cake, but it's actually something quite special. So take us through it, because I think baking one of her recipes is really a great cooking lesson. It really is, because, you know, I never even thought to put an upside down cake in a loaf pan. So that in and of itself is kind of interesting. So obviously an upside-down cake, everything that's on the bottom ends up on the top, right? So the bottom layer is a quick caramel. It's just a brown sugar and butter mixture. It forms almost like a paste, and that goes in the bottom. And then into that we stick some fruit. Claire uses figs in her recipe, which are really, really seasonal. I think the season for that here in the Northeast is maybe like a week of fresh figs. So we substituted with plums. You could also use pears in the fall. That would be really nice here as well. So one layer of fruit, and then comes the batter. And that's where we get really interesting. We should just say, and I totally agree, all-purpose flour has no flavor. Exactly. So we're going to use a couple of flours that have a lot of flavor. So we've got almond flour, which has, obviously, it's nutty, it's buttery, it's got a lot of moisture to it. And then we have rye flour, which adds some bitterness here. And those both really, really contrast with the sweetness of the fruit and the caramel and create a really nicely balanced cake. We've got warm spice with cardamom in there, a little bit of vanilla So then you turn it out, and all that fruit and that caramel sauce is on the top, and you've got this really nice loaf cake that, you know, I wouldn't say looks like any other loaf cake I've ever had, like a banana bread or a zucchini bread. It's a really nice, beautiful cake. 
you know, essentially a one-layer cake, but just in a long shape, <laughs> like a loaf cake. It's also not like pound cake or other bun cakes. It's not dry or fine crumbed. It's very moist and scrumptious and rich. Exactly. Which I really love. Yeah, you know, I would say don't think of it like a loaf cake that you know very well. Think of it more like almost like a sticky toffee pudding texture. It's got that really moist crumb and a ton of like juice from the caramel and the fruit. It's a totally different thing, but kind of familiar to look at, you know. Lynn, thank you very much. So next time you want to make a pound cake, please don't. (laughs) Make upside down cardamom spice plum cake from Claire Patak at the Violet Bakery in East London. Thanks, Lynn. You're welcome. You can get the recipe for upside-down cardamom-spiced plum cake at MilkStreetRadio.com. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Now let's see what's new in the world of Dan Pashman. Hey, Dan, what's up? Well, you know, I've had a lot on my mind lately. You know, the kids are back in school. Breakfast cereal consumption goes up around this time of year in our household. And I've been thinking a lot about why there aren't more savory breakfast cereals. Because lately I've been eating a lot of peanut butter checks, one of my all-time favorite cereals. And I was trying to unpack, like, why is this so good? Because there's a lot of peanut butter cereals out there. But I think peanut butter checks is running circles around most of them. And I looked at the label, and I think the reason is that peanut butter checks has 35 to 50% more salt than any other cereal I compared it to, including others with peanut butter in them. So it's salty. Okay. Yeah. People like, and, I like salt. Right. It's not just salty, but it, it's also sweet. And so it's, it's savory. And then you get the, the sort of natural sweetness of the milk. It led me to start experimenting with sprinkling Malden salt on all kinds of breakfast cereal. Yeah, it's interesting. Just last night, I actually had oatmeal for dinner, don't ask. And, and I did sprinkle, I always sprinkle malt and salt on top. It makes it 10 times better. Yes. Thank yeah, you. It does. So uh, the makers of malt and salt hundreds of years ago in their bespoke suits probably didn't imagine us sprinkling it on late night oatmeal or peanut butter checks. But nonetheless, it is fantastic. Cracklin' Oat Bran, Cinnamon Toast Crunch, all these are excellent with malt and salt sprinkled on top. You don't want like congee or, or rice porridge. You just want breakfast cereals that have more salt, which implies more savoriness. Right. Well, I mean, look, congee is a great example, but you know, even oatmeal, I think it's a little more common to put salt on. So I'm just saying that, that like other types of foods that are these sort of like comforting, often morning foods, I just think that like people haven't thought to add salt to breakfast cereal. And, and another area that I've been experimenting with, I don't know what your thoughts are on oat milk, Chris. Now, you know what? Almond milk, I sometimes put on cereal, but oat milk, it's not white. It's sort of got this beige's color, and there's something odd about it. I I don't love oat milk. I'll grant you that some brands are better than others. Some of them, to me, the sort of mouthfeel is off. Um, But if you find one you really like, there's salt in oat milk, at least the brands that I like. And so it's like it has the sort of creaminess and sweetness of milk, but with a savory note that you don't get with milk. And I think that makes it incredible. Tell me about your breakfast cereal game, Chris. What's your go-to? I mean, like, I imagine growing up in your house, like, you guys probably weren't allowed sugar cereals. It was probably just sort of like Weetabix. You know, 
Upon occasion, you've opined about what my childhood was like, my childhood home, and 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 sometimes you get the nail on the head, you know, little Lord Fauntleroy maybe. But um, no, no, I ate sugar pops, frosted flakes, the worst possible. Sugar pops was my favorite, okay, because I liked the song "Sugar Pops or Tops," you know. Right, right. So no, I I ate the worst, most sugary syrup. Okay, yeah. have you ever tried adding salt to any of them? No, but I'll tell you, in desserts, years ago, I found that I started adding salt to every dessert, especially chocolate really needs salt. But I, I find that salt really makes something sweet taste so much better. 100%. Yeah. I, I can't eat ice cream without it now, without a little sprinkle. But the other thing that I've started doing is I'm salting my breakfast cereal in the morning. And then I'm at night, I created something for my kids called Cereal Sundays. When I want to give them dessert, but I don't want it to be too over the top, give them like a bowl of, of cereal with like maybe a little bit of a chocolate syrup drizzle and a sprinkle of salt. And the syrup convinces them that it's dessert, almost like an ice cream sundae. What do you think? As soon as we get off this call, I'm calling Brigham and Women's the hospital in Boston <laughs> and suggested that the Pashman family go into a 20-year health trial <laughs> to see how this all works out for your <laughs> your children. I'm telling you, Chris, I want when we get off this call, I want you to go get yourself a bowl of cereal and some Malden salt and some chocolate syrup. I'm like, I, look, I, plain Cheerios, sort of the healthy type, I kind of like because it doesn't have much added sugar to it. Right. That's pretty good. All right. But I I, th I think you're right. Adding adding salt just in general to something sweet. And, and that's why, you know, salted caramel is such a popular flavor. I think that says it all, right? Do you ever mix different cereals, Chris? Oh my lord. Isn't there a law about this somewhere? I mean, <laughs> like what do you mix, for example? I mean, uh, almost Captain any, Crunch with Well, what? you could well, I, I don't eat Captain Crunch cuz it cuts the roof of your mouth. It leads to a medical condition that I've dubbed Captain Crunch's complaint. <laughs> It's very serious. It's really a design flaw. But um, I think that, you know, I think there's a lot of great cereal combinations. To me, the big thing is you got to really take into account not just the flavor, but the rate of milk absorption of your different cereals. Because, like, you know, let's say you have a very dense hard cereal like Crackle and Oat Bran, which is really great when it soaks up some milk and softens, but it's got to soften. You can't put right. that in with, like, Fruity Pebbles, which have a very narrow window of optimal consumption. So you know, maybe you put in the, the one cereal first and let it marinate a little bit, then add the second one. Otherwise, you need to be thinking about combining cereals that have a similar rate of milk absorption. It, it, I, I just want to point out a historical note, which I'm sure you're aware of. The Kellogg <laughs> brothers started, they wanted people to eat a more wholesome diet, so they started cereals that were whole grain, et cetera. And so it was a health, it was part of the health food movement, right? With you know Graham, Dr. Graham, and that's the, right. And Post, who was also a disciple, yes, and, and Post, who stole some of the techniques from Kellogg while staying at the institute. But now look where we are. <laughs> they, they would be rolling in their graves if they saw what happened to breakfast. I cereal. think that John Harvey Kellogg would be rolling in his grave. But as I understand it, his brother, who sort of wrested control of the company from him, was the one who started putting sugar on the cereals to make them sell more. Uh -huh. They had a little bit of a split over the health. So I think that um, the other Kellogg brother would be happy with me. There's always a dark one in every family. <laughs> well, so let's just go back. Is breakfast cereal for you pure, unadulterated joy, or is it about convenience? Like, in other words, if you could have anything you wanted for breakfast, what would you eat? I mean, certainly, if I'm eating breakfast cereal, convenience is a part of it. It's something that I want. I want something quick. And I, and I do also like more healthy cereals, and sometimes I'll go sort of half a healthy cereal, half of a sugar cereal. You know, But to me, 
cereal remains an incredibly fun food. You know, you need no culinary ability. If you have a few different boxes of cereal in your house open anytime, you can mix and match and create different ratios and different eating experiences. You can add salt. You can add nuts. You can add chocolate syrup. You can add dried fruits. It's such an easy way to have fun in the kitchen and be creative and, like, make your own masterpiece. Why wouldn't you want to do that? And kids love doing that. So I will always be a breakfast cereal lover. Well, Dan, as you know, we give cooking classes over Zoom. So we're going to sign you up for the next month so you can teach a breakfast cereal mix and match class. You got yeah. it. <laughs> it's going to sell out in two days. I know, seriously. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think that your souffle class might get overlooked, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> so Dan, as usual, brings sound culinary advice, salt your breakfast cereal, and mix up different flavors. Dan, thank you. Thanks, Chris. Take care. That was Dan Pashman, host of the Sporkful Podcast. That's it for today. You can find all of our episodes at MilkStreetRadio.com or wherever you get your podcasts. You can learn more about us at 177MilkStreet.com. There you can become a member and get full access to every recipe, all live stream cooking classes, free standard shipping from the Milk Street store, and more. You can also learn about our latest cookbook, Milk Street Simple. You can find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram at 177 Milk Street. We'll be back next week with more food stories and kitchen questions. And thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Co-founder, Melissa Baldino. Executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Senior editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp. Associate producer, Caroline Davis, with production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brindle Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Thank you.